Welcome to Angry Americans. Welcome to episode 72. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. And if you're not angry, you are not paying attention. Take away your guns, destroy your Second Amendment, no religion, no anything, hurt the Bible, hurt God. He's against God, he's against guns, he's against energy. That is the President of the United States. And he sounds like a maniac. Now, even more than usual, President Mayhem sounds crazier and crazier by the day. And some on the left are already celebrating his defeat. But his opponent, he isn't perfect either. Unlike the African-American community, with notable exceptions, the Latino community is an incredibly diverse community. That's Joe Biden accidentally saying that the African-American community is not diverse. Yeah. Many on both sides of the aisle are already celebrating. But there's a long way to go before the election in November and any potential change in the White House in January of next year. And nobody should be celebrating right now. But despite all their fumbles, all their flubs, all their weaknesses, all their issues, all their many, many years on this earth, despite all that, the matchup is now set. It's Trump and Pence and Biden and Harris. And after all the infighting, all the months of Democrats eating their own, it's finally come down to Joe Biden and California Senator Kamala Harris. As I predicted on this show, It's Harris. So if you're in the Harris camp, there's definitely good reason to celebrate. She's not the nominee for president, but Senator Kamala Devi Harris is the Democratic Party nominee for vice president. And this is one of those rare cases where coming in second is still a win and definitely worth celebrating. Not just for Harris and not just for Democrats, but for America and for the future of the American dream. The child of immigrants, one from India and one from Jamaica, and the first female candidate of color to be nominated by a major party in American history. The candidacy of Kamala Harris is historic, and that's worth celebrating, no matter what party you claim or no party at all. Joe, I'm so proud to stand with you, and I do so mindful of all the heroic and ambitious women before me whose sacrifice, determination, and resilience makes my presence here today even possible. Her candidacy is historic. And for a few hours, for many, there was a bit of happiness, a bit of hope, a bit of celebration. But it hasn't felt like a summer worth celebrating. Parties don't have the same pop that they used to, actual parties or political parties. And the conventions for the Democrats start next week, and the Republicans are the week after that. Two weeks of what would normally be the biggest political parties of the year, the biggest political parties of the last four years. I've been to every convention for the Democrats and the Republicans since 2004, and both parties like to party. 
each in their own unique way. And the parties, and the parties hosted by the parties, are as different as the candidates that represent them. And as an independent, it's always been fascinating for me to see the parties party. And in addition to the speeches, when there's not a pandemic, that's what they normally are. Big parties for politicians and for the delegates, activists, nerds, media, protesters, and anyone who cares about and or works in and around politics. They're bizarre and broken, but also important and inspiring. Every four years around this time, normally, it's political party time in the USA. But this year, it'll all be different. No parties for the parties this year. And there won't be any massive crowds like there were in Denver in 2008, when over 75,000 people packed into Mile High Stadium to see Barack Obama accept the nomination. I was there for that one, and it was electric. But this year won't be like that. And there won't be any crowds like there were in 2016, when over 20,000 people packed into Quicken Loans Arena to see Donald Trump accept the nomination. I have loved and respected him my entire life. And I could not be more proud tonight to present to you and to all of America, my father and our next president, Donald J. Trump. I was there for that one, too, and it was terrifying. But this year, it'll all be different. It'll all be digital and distance. No crowds, no protests, no concerts, no parties, and very little celebration. America isn't exactly in a celebratory mood. A pandemic is rampaging all across our country. 16 million Americans are out of work. College football is on the verge of total cancellation. And summer is about to end. Yep, in some parts of the country, the leaves are already turning. In some states, school's already started. The days are getting shorter, and I've even been seeing acorns on the ground lately. The summer is flying by, and a very rough fall and a potentially rougher winter are coming soon. And right now in America, we're not exactly in a celebratory mood, and there's plenty to be angry about. But just as there's always reason to be angry, there's always reason to celebrate. If you look hard enough, if you stay vigilant, babies are being born, people are still getting married. At least for now, more sports are happening at the same time than any other time in history. And next week, my oldest son turns five and he's getting a birthday party. It's not going to be like the one he had last year on the Intrepid Aircraft Carrier Museum in New York with all his little friends crowded into a little party room on board the old Navy ship, complete with me in costume, dressed like Master Chief from Halo. It's not going to be the same. But my little boy is still getting a party. A safe, socially distant, family-only party. And we will celebrate him turning five years old. Coming up, so you better get 
Even in a pandemic, little kids are having birthdays. And they deserve them. They deserve to be happy. They deserve to have a good time. They deserve to sing and be happy. They deserve cake. They deserve to celebrate. And after simply surviving this year so far, we all do. And while the parties may not be partying at the conventions, and very few Americans really feel like celebrating, one group is definitely celebrating. Celebrating America's summer of division, demoralization, distraction, and damage. Our enemies. Our enemies are celebrating. And while millions of Americans are lamenting the loss of the 2020 Cheez-It Bowl or the famous Idaho Potato Bowl and epic clashes like Oregon State versus Utah, Vladimir Putin and countless other enemies of America are popping their champagne, cranking up their music, and putting on their dancing shoes. Our enemies are partying for sure right about now. As the pandemic, the 2020 election, the Black Lives Matter protests, and whatever dumb shit Trump said in the last half hour dominate the news cycle, America's national security right now is more vulnerable than any other time in recent memory. Our military has been weakened. Our troops have been politicized. Our people are sick. Our country's divided. And our enemies are celebrating. Everyone is talking about the upcoming election. But very few are talking about how to protect that election from the Russians or how to deal with a multitude of other national security threats that face our country at this fragile time. It's not just our back door that's open right now. It's our side door. It's a basement door. It's the front door. The windows are wide open and there's holes blasted in the roof and in the walls all over the house that are getting bigger and bigger by the minute. And very few Americans are focused on it. But in this episode, we're focused on it. And we're joined by retired Army three-star general Mark Hurtling for an important and inspiring conversation that you need to hear. General Hurtling served almost four decades in the U.S. Army, where he partied by commanding U.S. Army Europe and 7th Army, leading over 40,000 soldiers caring for over 100,000 family members, and partnering with armies of 50 countries in the European theater. In the proud, noble, and uniquely American tradition of General George Washington, General Dwight D. Eisenhower, Admiral Mike Mullen, and countless others, General Mark Hurtling is the best kind of smart, strategic, kind, innovative flag-grade officer that only the United States can produce. There was a decorated general with a heart of gold that likened him to all the stories he told of past battles won and lost and legends of old, a seasoned veteran in his own time. General Hurtling is a military analyst for CNN. He was appointed by President Obama to the President's Council on Fitness, Sports, and Nutrition and is a senior vice president at Florida Hospital. Hurtling is one of the most dynamic military experts in the media, and a highly sought-after expert on leadership, national security, and health, and a very cool guy. He shares personal stories you won't forget. And like any really good military leader, he's got some really good acronyms that you also won't forget. 
He'll break down the threats facing America, analyze the leadership of Donald Trump and newly nominated VP candidate and Senator Kamala Harris, and shares key insights about how to lead in tough times like this. Whether you're leading a large company, a political convention, your own family, or a five-year-old's birthday party, it's a conversation you won't forget, and you'll want to play again and share with others you care about. We're seen as the class clowns right now. Uh, we are not doing well with the pandemic, and every nation in the world is watching us, and they can't believe their eyes because we're the nation that put a man on the moon, and yet we're the worst in terms of dealing with a, with a health issue. From my standpoint, having lived around the world, I know because I've talked to former colleagues in other countries, and, and they're asking me, what the hell is going on in your country? America is at war, and General Hurtling is a wartime commander. He's also a citizen soldier that cares deeply about his country, not any party. And like any important wartime commander, he puts patriotism, true patriotism, over party, always. And for decades in the military and now as a civilian, General Hurtling has demonstrated the best kind of American leadership for the world to see. In the Army, on CNN, and coming up in this episode. It's another important conversation on angry Americans with another important, inspiring, and iconic leader. I say it every show. There are two kinds of leaders in America right now. The first are the kind that are trying to contain and defeat the virus and win the war. And the second are trying to kill the rest of us. It's that simple. Either you're with us, either you love freedom and with nations which embrace freedom, or you're with the enemy. It's normally not that simple, but it is right now. And it's the rare time you'll hear me use a George W. Bush quote. It wasn't that simple with terrorism, but it is with the war on the virus. And General Hurtling is working to fight the virus and fight ignorance and fight our enemies. He's a man who's been in his share of firestorms and he knows how to ride them, how to survive them, and even how to harness them. Riders on the storm Riders on the storm He's more than a rider on the storm. He's a leader who can help us master the storm. And he shares some valuable wisdom on how you can survive the storm and make it to the parties on the other side. Whether it's the storm of the pandemic, the storm of losing your job, or the storm of just grinding out life in America right now, General Hurtling will help us all become better leaders. Whether you're leading a Fortune 500 company, an SEC football team, a sales unit, a local restaurant trying to survive, or just your family. But quickly, before we get to General Hurtling and the best description yet of a first car color, there are some issues that have me angry, have others angry, and should have everyone angry. So let's party through some important news, people. And just like the rest of the year so far, and the entire summer, and likely the rest of 2020, and likely beyond, the biggest news party of the year is still the virus. America now has over 5 million cases. Former Republican presidential candidate Herman Cain is dead from the virus. And despite what President Mayhem says, 
kids can get the virus. More than 97,000 kids in the U.S. tested positive for the coronavirus in the last two weeks of July alone. And two of the five power conferences won't be playing college football this year. The Big Ten and the Pac-12 announced they won't play football this fall. And they'll explore playing in the spring. Others will likely follow, blowing yet another hole in America's plans for a return to normalcy this fall. So who are you, man? I'm the party pooper. Yep. The virus is the great global party pooper of 2020. Now, Trump, of course, is pushing for college football to happen anyway, just like he pushed for churches to reopen, just like he pushed for his political rallies to happen, just like he's pushing for schools to reopen. He's that really annoying guy that just wants to keep the party going even when everyone else is done. And he's always putting profits ahead of people, always. And of course, President Mayhem never misses an opportunity to politicize the military, even when it comes to this ridiculous college football crusade. He posted a video pushing for college football to happen, and half the footage is from the Army-Navy game. Because what's more patriotic than making young future military officers endanger themselves and others for the entertainment of politicians? Troops aren't party favors for our child president, and they shouldn't be props. It's a consistent, dangerous, and damaging political strategy that he employs on the regular. But despite Trump's best efforts, football is not looking good for the fall, especially college football, where the kids don't get paid and they don't benefit themselves financially from playing. So unfortunately for college football fans like us, the party is about to be over. Some are still fighting, and it's all about the money for far too many. The list of conferences that are and are not playing is quickly becoming a list of conferences that do care about their players' health and welfare and those that don't. The SEC, ACC, Big 12, and other Southern and Red State conferences are still trying to play. And the Big 10, Ivy League, Mid-Atlantic, and all of Division 2 and 3 are shut down. And as someone who played football in the Division Three NESCAC myself, I'm proud my league made the hard call to shut it down. I know it's hard for the players. And it's not just schools in Massachusetts or Connecticut. The Big Ten is like the swing state league. Ohio State, Wisconsin, Michigan, Penn State, Minnesota, all shut down. That's a lot of swing states. And of course, the Trump-supporting football coaches are coming out of the woodwork this week to pose as public health experts, ranging from Tommy Tuberville to Lou Holtz. Check this out. The rest of you want to play? Let's go play. I think that we shut everything down for six months. I'm going crazy about being quarantined. I think other people are tired of Let's move on with our life. When they stormed Normandy, they knew that there were going to be casualties. There's going to be risk. Two percent of the people that attend, they, they go to the... Uh, emergency room, go for COVID-19. 2% of it is yeah. going down. But young people, Bill, they think it's like cancer. They think they're going to die. Everybody's an old. You gotta, I don't know if it's the young Let's, people. I, listen, you just laid out a very interesting argument there about the presence of the universities. 
That's 83-year-old former Notre Dame coach Lou Holtz on Fox News with Bill Hemmer, sounding like a crazy person, even more than usual. Lou Holtz is infected. He was infected long ago, but now he's really infected, and so are many other coaches in college football. It got passed around America like meningitis at a keg party inside a frat house basement. It started inside the White House, moved to Congress, over to the media, onto the governors, and now it's infecting Lou Holtz and college sports athletes and coaches everywhere. The stupid is everywhere, and it's partying all over college football like Johnny Manziel on a bender. And the stupid loves the SEC. The stupid loves some college football, and the stupid loves tailgate parties. And college football players have now temporarily replaced American troops as Donald Trump's favorite political chew toy, his favorite political prop, his favorite group to hold hostage for his own failures. But his shtick is now about as tired as foam parties. Remember those? Foam parties? But don't blame the media or the liberals. Foam parties were gross on their own. And a football locker room, pre-snap huddle, and four quarters of offensive and defensive line play is about as bad as you could design when it comes to social distancing. And former NBA star Rex Chapman, our guest from the extremely popular last episode, had a great tweet. Rex said, if you're looking for someone to blame for football getting canceled, you might start with the guy who keeps saying the virus will just magically disappear and then goes golfing. Rex has got it right. The die is cast and the college football party is over before it even starts. And it sucks. But it's for the best, for the players, for the public, and for our country. Wartime requires sacrifice. And if we're going to finally get serious about fighting the virus, this kind of sacrifice is necessary. And others will be too. And next time someone tells you we have to have football, or we have to have pool parties, or we have to have the right to dance around in Cracker Barrel with no mask on, tell them that Vladimir Putin, Kim Jong-un, and the ghost of Osama bin Laden thanks them for their support. Because every time a stupid infected SEC coach goes on Fox to lobby for an Alabama home game, our enemies are celebrating. And the stupid is dominating the SEC right now like Alabama, LSU, and Clemson combined. The stupid loves the SEC right now. And our enemies love the virus. And the virus loves parties. And parties aren't just happening in the SEC. They're also happening in secret in places like L.A. and New York and Miami. Speaking of Miami, guess who's at it again? Badly infected by and spreading extensively the stupid. The coronavirus party animal himself, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who kind of reminds me of this guy from back to school. You there. What's going on here? Melon Man storing the greatest party of all time. The whole world is there. It's the best thing that's ever happened to me in my whole life. Oh, God. Look at that. Listen to that racket. This is disgraceful. It is disgraceful. 
DeSantis is disgraceful. You may remember we recognized his unique talent for partying with the stupid way back in episode 53 in April with Dr. Paul Hazer. If you haven't heard that, go back and listen to it. It was at the height of the pandemic in New York when DeSantis said Florida had it all under control. Back when people were partying on the beaches all across Florida and into Memorial Day, DeSantis put out a message that was clear. Party on, Wayne! Party on, Garth. And Florida partied on, all spring and into the summer. And now, Florida has more COVID cases than any other state except California. And every day, Ron DeSantis finds a new and creative way to sound like a jackass. And here's just the latest example, one that even tops Lou Holtz from earlier. Martin County Superintendent Lori Gaylord told me today that she viewed reopening her schools as a mission akin to a Navy SEAL operation. Just as the SEALs surmounted obstacles to bring Osama bin Laden to justice, so too would the Martin County school system find a way to provide parents with a meaningful choice of in-person instruction or continued distance learning. All in, all the time. So now DeSantis is comparing reopening schools to a Navy SEAL mission that killed Osama bin Laden. There's a stupid party raging in Florida. And Ron DeSantis, he's like the Van Wilder of stupid parties. And high end or low end, from the rich to the poor, the virus likes to party. Parties in Greenwich, Connecticut, the ultra-rich area where teen parties have led to a jump in virus cases. Many of these kids were seniors who had just finished their final year at one of two elite private schools. And now, more than 20 kids between the age of 16 and 21 have tested positive for the virus, with more cases expected as testing continues. So, parties in Greenwich, but no parties at UConn, where the UConn Huskies canceled their football season. So despite all the warnings and a thousand Americans dying a day, some people are still fighting for their right to be free to weaken our country and party. And it's from elite areas like Greenwich, Connecticut, to not-so-elite areas like the annual Sturgis Motorcycle Rally in South Dakota, which I've never been to, but I've always wanted to go to. Just not this year. And if I did make a trek to Sturgis in South Dakota, where Governor Christy Nome continues to hold the line for stupid, I would expect to experience parties. And parties with music. But I wouldn't expect this. That's a party at Sturgis playing the Fresh Prince theme song. A motorcycle rally in a pandemic in one of the whitest states in America, and Fresh Prince, without any irony. So this month, the chip is happening. The Sturgis Buffalo Chip is about the only annual music festival in America not canceled this year. And the song they should have been playing was something very different. They shouldn't have been playing the Fresh Prince theme song. They should have been playing this. But the police were not at Sturgis or the chip. Sting is 68 years old now, and he's smart. And so were most of the Buffalo Chip's major headliners, including Willie Nelson and ZZ Top, who dropped from this year's shows. But you know who's not? And you know who was there? No, not Vanilla Ice. Even he wised up and canceled his show in Texas earlier this summer. 
But others haven't gotten the message, and it didn't stop Molly Hatchett, the Guess Who, Trapped, Buckcherry, Lit, 38 Special, Quiet Riot, Reverend Horton Heat, and Smash Mouth. More than 250,000 people are expected at Sturgis, and that includes Smash Mouth. And Smash Mouth is now understandably facing backlash after the band played to a packed, unmasked crowd at the Sturgis Motorcycle Rally. I've been going crazy, you know? And now we're all here together in China. And we're being human once again. Fuck that COVID shit. We're all here together tonight. Fuck that COVID shit. That's what Smash Mouth frontman Steve Harrell told the crowd. Well, that was stupid. And the virus thanks you. The virus thanks all of you at Sturgis, but especially Smash Mouth. Their biggest song ever was All Star. And they're All Stars now for sure. Just like Vanilla Ice, Governor Ron DeSantis, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio, Tucker Carlson, and so many others. The lineup for the Summer Music Festival of the Stupid continues to grow. But this episode, Smash Mouth, you're the headliner. And I hope you play requests. Because I've got one. It's a song that from now on, you should be remembered for most of all. I drive really slow in the ultra-fast lane While people behind me are going insane I'm on a Yeah, Smash Mouth likely won't be performing at either of the political conventions this month. And neither will many of the bands and artists that have been regulars over the last few decades, like Charlie Daniels for the Republicans or John Legend for the Democrats. The music will be missing. And so will the protests. Every convention usually has protesters outside, but not this year. And the protests nationwide have died down a bit, and the coverage of them has died down, but the impact has not. Talk to me so you can see right now, Chicago is a focal point. Looters are out and have targeted at least 25 businesses in the loop. And the city is under extreme stress right now after scenes like this. Some people think that this is a time for them to have a party at a store to go in and go on a shopping spree. But that's not the case. And Chicago continues to be in disarray. And after some relative calm, protests have reemerged in Portland after the 77th night in a row of unrest there. But protests aren't just happening in the streets. They're, of course, happening in sports. But now there's another kind of protest, not kneeling, but it's a protest not to kneel for the national anthem. Almost every NBA player and coach is kneeling, but some are not. Miami Heat center Myers Leonard has chosen to stand for the national anthem before games, saying afterward he can be both a patriot and a supporter of Black Lives Matter. And he's making a personal choice not to kneel. And I really respect Myers Leonard for this. It's a complicated issue for many people, and he had a thoughtful message about it. And everyone has a right to make his or her own choice about the anthem. And because someone protests during the anthem doesn't mean they hate America. And because they choose not to doesn't mean they hate Black Lives Matter. And others have also decided to stand, like Orlando Magic power forward Jonathan Isaac 
and San Antonio coach Greg Popovich and Spurs assistant Becky Hammond. They both stood for the anthem. Popovich is a graduate of the Air Force Academy, and he stood during the anthem with his arms at his side. He's also the oldest coach in the NBA. I've written about this subject and talked about this subject for years, and I obviously support Black Lives Matter and what the movement stands for, and there are many situations where I would kneel to show my support for Black Lives Matter, but not during the national anthem. I wouldn't do it. That's my choice, and it's yours too. It's our right to protest in the U.S. however we see fit, and protests are happening all across the U.S., but not only in the U.S., That's the sound of protests in Minsk, Belarus. Thousands of people are protesting against what is viewed as a rigged presidential election. And 8,000 people have already been arrested. 8,000. Much more coming up on Belarus with General Mark Hurtling. It's an issue you probably haven't heard enough about. And he knows it well. He knows the area. And he's going to break it down. Protests are patriotic. And expect much more of them in the months to come in Belarus, across Europe, and all across America. And especially after the election, no matter who wins. So the lineups are finally set. And maybe the Democrats will finally stop eating their own. But interestingly, once again, none of the four candidates on the ballot in November have any military experience, making this an unprecedented third election in a row with no veterans on either major party ticket. The Republican nominee in 2008, John McCain, was a Vietnam veteran and retired Navy captain. He was the last person with military experience to be on the ticket of a major party. But that's likely to change in the decades ahead. With Tom Cotton on the Republican side and Tammy Duckworth and Pete Buttigieg on the other side, that's likely to change in the decades to come. And they'll all be on display at the conventions, which are just a week away. Biden's not going to travel to Milwaukee to accept the Democratic presidential nomination, which is smart because the number one priority for Biden above all others, stay alive, stay alive, stay alive. Number two, lead by example. He wants to show he takes the pandemic seriously and Trump doesn't. Now, Trump reversed course last month and canceled the first part of the Republican National Convention that was supposed to happen in Jacksonville. That was just weeks after he moved the event from North Carolina after state officials there demanded the party take health precautions. Now, he said he may do it at Gettysburg or he may do it at the White House, which would be illegal, but that's never stopped him before. Maybe he'll just do it at Mar-a-Lago or maybe he'll just rent out one of his own hotels. Also not new for him because he's got the money. Trump raised over $165 million in July for his campaign and his shared committees with the Republican National Committee, beating Biden, who raised $140 million last month. Now, Biden had outraised Trump in the previous two months, the first time Biden had outraised him. But that may change now because the VP sweepstakes is finally over. Kamala Harris is going to add significant fuel injection to this campaign, and she's already added an injection of donors. And interestingly, Kamala Harris will be the first person from a West Coast state to hold a spot on the Democratic ticket, and the first person from any state west of the Rockies. And Harris, in my view, is the best pick for Biden to win. She's a smart choice, and I'm glad it's the one Biden made. I don't know if she'd make the best president, but she does give him the best chance to win. 
As far as who I would have felt most comfortable being president if Biden died, that'd probably be Ambassador Susan Rice, who you heard on this show a couple months back. And we could argue about whether or not Rice might have made the best president, but Harris definitely gives him the best chance to win. And that must be the priority. She brings her own campaign infrastructure and apparatus that's incorporated into Biden's immediately. That means field organizers, email lists, donors, and an entire infrastructure. And she brings something that's maybe most important of all, turnout. That's the key. Biden doesn't win by converting Trump voters or even by swaying moderates. Biden wins by turning out voters that he knows are locked. And few demographics are more of a lock for him than black voters. Over 95% of black voters that vote, with Harris at VP especially, will go for Biden. So it's much smarter for him to turn out 100 more black voters than to try to convince 100 random voters, moderates, or independents. It's just not efficient, especially with such little time left. Harris will inspire people, especially women and people of color, to vote. And when people of color vote, they vote for Democrats. That's not an endorsement. That's an analysis. And it's the truth. What state she's from doesn't really matter. How she does in that one debate against Mike Pence, that doesn't really matter either. And I think she's the right pick for him at this time. And with no military experience herself or time on the Armed Services Committee, she's going to have to make the case for why she's qualified to be commander-in-chief, especially given Biden's age. And now that we know Harris is the VP nominee, now we can start to play a different party game. We can talk about who would serve where if Biden's elected president. You're going to see all these people come through during the conventions over the next couple of weeks. And for the Democrats, they're names you've seen before. So what about Elizabeth Warren as Senate Majority Leader? Pete Buttigieg as Secretary of State? Maybe Booker as AG? And what the hell do you do with Bernie? Who would be SecDef? And who would run the VA? That's going to be a fun game to play over the next couple of weeks as you watch the convention. So if Biden wins, he gets to decide who gets to party at the VA for the next few years. And it's been no party over there lately. And here are the latest numbers real quick. The deaths have almost doubled at VA in the last two months. As a reminder, these are only the veterans who are actually registered at the VA, which is only about half of the overall veterans population in America. And they now have surpassed 40,000 cases inside the VA. And as we've covered before, nearly half of all VA cases are black and Hispanic veterans, even though they only make up 23% of the patients overall. Active cases are now at about 4,800, down 22% in the last two weeks. Total deaths are over 2,000 now, up 14% in the last two weeks. And still, as of today, VA's only administered about 500,000 tests nationwide. That's only up about 27,000 in the last week. New York State did three times that yesterday alone. New York State tests about half a million people weekly. So weekly. The state of New York tests more than the entire national VA has tested since the pandemic began. But check this out. Testing counts haven't been updated by the VA in at least six days. The last public number was 494,000 on August 5th. So more than six days and no update on testing at the second largest government agency in the United States. Is anyone in America paying attention to the importance of this other than us? 
help us spread the word and check out the hashtag where is Wilkie. Also of note, veterans unemployment is now double what it was before the pandemic hit, and it's going to get worse, especially if President Mayhem continues to hit the Postal Service, which employs tons of veterans nationwide. More coming up on that in our action segment. You're definitely going to want to hear it. There's also a new report out focused on the issue of nursing homes. We've talked about this for months on this show, but state veterans nursing homes have been hit extremely hard by the pandemic in places like Holyoke, Massachusetts. And the only reason to celebrate on this issue is going to be when some of these folks do the perp walk and end up in prison. But a leader named Linda Schwartz was a longtime commissioner of the Connecticut Department of Veterans Affairs. She's also a Vietnam veteran who served in the Air Force, and she worked with the Vietnam Veterans of America to put together a committee to investigate what had gone wrong in these hospitals. And what they found confirmed what we knew, but was still startling. A lack of transparency about the number of coronavirus deaths at veterans homes and a VA leadership team that shirked responsibility for the facilities. And the committee found that 1,011 residents had died at veterans' homes as of July 17th. However, that number includes deaths at only 47 homes out of 162. Let me say that again. That's only 47 out of 162 state-run veterans' homes. More than 100 homes haven't even reported data to state or federal authorities. But the takeaway from the report is, of course, that the VA should have been more involved with veterans' homes to ensure they're in good condition. And in the case of the pandemic, collaboration could have saved lives. But VA Secretary Wilkie does not want to hear it. He also doesn't want to hear that he has any racial problems. Despite the fact that 80% of VA employees believe racism is a serious, pervasive problem, this is the nation's second largest federal agency, and more than half of the people working there reported witnessing racial discrimination against veterans while at work, according to a new union survey. 78% of the staff surveyed said racism is a moderate to serious problem at VA. 76% of staff said they experienced racism themselves. 55% said they witnessed racism against veterans. I described it as a mold, in the dark, secret. That's what one former VA staffer said. So 80% of employees at the VA believe racism is a problem. At a place run by a guy who defended the display of Nazi swastikas on VA property and was once a member of the Sons of the Confederate Veterans, you don't say. The only party at VA is going to be when there's a change of command. And things aren't much better over at the Department of Defense. So things at the DOD continue to be very strange. And this week, the Secretary of Defense tweeted an appearance that he made on Judge Jeanine's ridiculous show on Fox. He shared his plans for troop numbers in a combat zone through a tweet after an appearance on Judge Jeanine's show. Judge Jeanine Pirro. That's how serious Mark Esper, Secretary of Defense, also known as Yesper, treats his job. And that's how badly he wants Trump's approval. He actually tweeted four separate clips from Judge Jeanine on Fox and a promo of his upcoming appearance. Five separate tweets about Judge Jeanine Pirro from his official Secretary of Defense Twitter account. Now, in comparison, he posted one tweet about National Purple Heart Day, and he only posted one tweet about the explosion in Beirut. 
So five tweets about Judge Janine on Fox and only one about the Beirut explosion. This shows you the problem. This is why he's called Jesper. He is focused on Trump, not on our national security and not on our troops. He's a disgraceful sycophant. If you're not angry about this, you're not paying attention. But apparently Trump is paying attention and he's not happy with Esper. We've covered this before, but now he's weighing replacing Esper at the Pentagon after the election. But don't worry, President Mayhem. Joe Biden will definitely replace Jesper as Secretary of Defense after the election. So while Jesper's trying to curry favor with Trump and promoting himself on Fox, other stories are off the radar of the American public in the middle of this pandemic, including tragic stories. You probably didn't even hear about this, but eight Marines and one sailor lost their life in a training exercise at the end of last month. An amphibious assault vehicle sank to a depth of about 385 feet during a shore-to-ship training maneuver off the coast of San Clemente Island, about 78 miles away from San Diego. Sixteen crew members were on board. One Marine was pronounced dead at the scene, and seven others were rescued, and two were transported to the hospital with critical injuries, but another eight service members died. The oldest was only 23 years old. And this is who was lost. Marine Lance Corporal Guillermo Perez, 20, of New Braunfels, Texas. Private First Class Brian Baltiera, 19, of Corona, California. Lance Corporal Marco Barranco, 21, of Montebello, California. Private First Class Evan Bath, 19, of Oak Creek, Wisconsin. U.S. Navy Hospitalman Chris Nem, 22, of Stockton, California. Private First Class Jack Ryan Ostrovsky, 21, of Bend, Oregon. Corporal Wesley Rod, 23, of Harris, Texas. Lance Corporal Chase Sweetwood, of Portland, Oregon, age 19. And Corporal Cesar Villanueva, 21, of Riverside, California. The oldest was 23. But you won't hear much about that in the news this week, or from the president. And you, of course, won't hear him condemn the Russian bounties. And it's been over 50 days since the news hit. You won't hear about it from the president, but you will hear about it from me and General Mark Hurtling coming up. Because it's happening, and we're weaker, and it's another failure, another reason that our enemies are celebrating. Our enemies may be celebrating our division now, and our weakness. But there is still reason to celebrate our heroes. They're out there, especially now. And this is the greatest time we'll ever see in our life for the helpers and for the heroes to step up. And the helpers still include many cops. It's been a rough summer for police everywhere. And it's been a much needed summer of change. But a large majority of our police serve with honor, integrity, and selfless service. And often with heroism like an amazing scene that unfolded this week in Lodi, California. And here's how it went down. A man's wheelchair got stuck on the tracks before the arms of a railroad crossing came down, and a Union Pacific train came barreling toward the spot where the man was trapped in the wheelchair. And Lodi police officer Erica Urena was there. She was on patrol and saw the railroad crossing arms coming down. 
She quickly got out of her patrol car and ran to the man, sprang into action. And this is what it sounded like from her body camera. The video's wild, and you can see it on our Twitter and our Facebook, but Officer Urea saw this man stuck in his wheelchair on the track. She jumped out of her car and pulled him out of his wheelchair at the very last moment. And a friend Rex Chapman, guest from last episode, tweeted this video. And here's something refreshing and unusual. Officer Urea declined to speak to the media about the incident, but the police department said she's a hero. And she is. She's a hero and a helper and exactly the kind of hero we need right now. Our enemies may be celebrating, but there's still much back here in the U.S. to celebrate, too. Even in a pandemic, even if it's only the idea that we can celebrate later, and especially after President Mayhem is gone and our country begins a new chapter. But before then... Angry Americans continues our groundbreaking focus on the fighters of the front lines of the three storms pounding our country, the virus, the protests, and the election, with another compelling conversation with an important, inspiring, iconic American, General Mark Hurtling. There was a decorated general with a heart of gold that likened him to all the stories he told of past battles won and lost and legends of old. A seasoned veteran in his own time on the battlefield. General Hurtling spent over three years in combat during his career. He was assistant division commander to the 1st Armored Division in Baghdad from 2003 to 2004, the same time I was there. And he later commanded the same division in Germany, preparing it to become a 30,000-strong U.S. task force in northern Iraq from 2007 to 2009. Task Force Iron was based in Tikrit as a multinational division north during the surge. During that period, the unit conducted operations with five different Iraqi army divisions. General Hurtling served or commanded at every level, from platoon to field army, and he's led training at all of the combat training centers in the U.S. and at the Joint Multinational Training Center in Germany, where I also trained myself. He served as the Chief of War Plans, J-7, on the Joint Staff, and was in that position on 9-11. And he's the author of Growing Physician Leaders, Empowering Doctors to Improve Our Healthcare. Hurtling has a Bachelor of Science from the United States Military Academy and is a graduate of the Army Staff College, the School of Advanced Military Studies, and the National War College. He has master's degrees in military art and history and international security studies and a master's of science in exercise physiology from Indiana University. He holds numerous military awards, including the Distinguished Service Medal, the Legion of Merit, Bronze Stars, and the Purple Heart. He's also received awards from the governments of Germany, Poland, Romania, Saudi Arabia, and Kuwait. General Hurtling left the Army in 2016, and he's married to his best friend, Sue. They have two sons and four grandsons. General Mark Hurtling is a guest that shaped America's past, is shaping our present, and is definitely shaping our future. From the generation of army leaders he's mentored, to the dozens of allied nations he's supported, to the millions of CNN viewers around the world he's educated, his life and his work is a celebration of leadership. 
He lives the army values, he lives the constitution, and he lives the four eyes that define this show. It's a banquet of integrity. It's a shindig of information. It's a soiree of impact and a jamboree of inspiration. Our enemies may be celebrating now, but if General Hurtling is right, they won't be celebrating for long, and brighter days may be ahead, and there will be a day to celebrate. The day that Trump is defeated, or our VT day, and the day we defeat the coronavirus, our BC day, our victory over coronavirus day. One day, we'll have outdoor concerts again. One day, we'll have family barbecues again. One day, we'll go to Little League games again. One day, we'll all spend graduations and labor days and birthdays together. One day, we'll be able to be there after the babies are born and come home. That day will come, and it'll be reason to celebrate. If we put in the work, stay disciplined, stay true, stay vigilant, and stay frosty. Welcome to a threat assessment briefing from one of America's top military strategic thinkers. Welcome to a coaching session with one of the best leadership coaches in America. Welcome to a discussion about how to overcome adversity. Welcome to an episode about how to lead in a time of war. Welcome to a conversation about how to make it matter. Welcome to Angry Americans, episode 72. Ladies and gentlemen, angry Americans around the country and around the world, I am very, very happy and humbled to be joined by a guest I've really been excited about having on this show for some time now. Uh, I think my favorite general on TV uh, and, and one of my favorite military strategic leaders in the country and a true patriot, someone that I think is a, a voice to be heard, especially in times like this, General, the great and powerful General Mark Hurtling is with us today. How are you, sir? Hey, I'm doing great, Paul. And boy, what a what a lead in. I wish my mother was alive to hear that. She'd be proud of me. <laughs> well, I'm sure wherever she is, she's proud of you because you're doing some some good stuff and you've been a great friend to me and a great voice of reason for our country. Uh, and I'm really just grateful to have you. You're also, I think, the most senior ranking officer we've ever had on the show. Wow. So as a lowly uh, first lieutenant, I am, I am grateful to have a three-star joining us here on, on Angry Americans. Well, I, I, I got to be honest with you, Paul. It, it's good to be on with you because I've seen the kinds of things you've done for Afghan and Iraqi vets and the, the, the way you started your career and, and made a name for so many people that, that needed support. So I'm happy to be here with you and I appreciate you asking me on. Excellent. Excellent. So the first question I usually ask folks, we're in the pandemic. Everybody's experiencing it differently. You know, you're, you're a combat leader. You've been all around the world. You, you inspire others. But can you break down on a very basic level, sir, where are you and how are you? Uh, well, uh, we are, my wife and I retired here in Florida. We're in Orlando. I uh, was offered a job by a, a healthcare organization, uh, which surprised a lot of people. I didn't want to get into the defense industry. I wanted to do something very different. And uh, for the last 
six years since I retired, I've been working primarily in healthcare, uh, working a thing called a global partnering initiative, trying to bring healthcare to different locations around the world and also bring good ideas back to the United States. But in the last couple of years, Paul, they, they've asked me to put together something called a physician leader course uh, because they, they wanted to use some of the things they saw in me in terms of leadership uh, to help their doctors become better leaders in the organizations and have them collaborate more. So that's now become my passion. It's been a lot of fun. And over the last couple of years, we've trained about six or 700 doctors to be better leaders. And what's great is now in this pandemic, in this crisis, I'm not only able to see them uh, execute in their roles, their new leadership roles, but also to see how they've taken some of the military lessons and apply them in a, in a crisis in healthcare. And it's been really um, a revelation to watch these young men and women do some things in an industry that's really fraught with a lot of dysfunction and inefficiencies. I'm really looking forward to having a discussion with you about the national security landscape and, you know, increasingly how in many ways I think we're vulnerable here at home because of our response to the pandemic. I want to go deeper on your assessment of the battlefield and even in Florida. But before we get to that, uh, we're all dealing with the pandemic differently. We're getting to know our guests and I want to ask you a question I ask of all our guests. What is your, as we'd say in the military, adult beverage of choice? What is your drink of choice uh, when, you're, when you're in Florida and, uh, and, and taking a break? Well, it, it depends on the situation. DOTS, uh, an acronym I use a lot. It depends on the situation. If it's uh, during the, the cooler months, it's usually a, uh, an old-fashioned. During the summer months, uh, the, the happy hour drink is a gin and tonic. Uh, during an afternoon on Saturday, I'm a, you know, spent a lot of time in Germany. So I'm a big Hefe Bison fan of, uh, the beer genre. And, uh, if, if I'm in a formal event and usually have to go with wine, it's a, a red Cabernet or some kind of red blend. So is that, is that good enough for you? I'm, yeah, I'm that's excellent. I love, I, I love dots. I think that's going to be a mantra for this discussion and probably for the next couple of years in America, right? Yeah, exactly. um, normally we would be in person, so I can't toast you. I think I'm having a coffee. You're having a coffee. So, you know, yep. cheers to that. Did you learn any German toasts in all your time in Germany, sir? Uh, well, I, I can actually uh, order beer uh, in 39 different languages, <laughs> but I can only ask where the bathroom is in about 14 of those. So you have to kind of measure your response. Uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, Slange, obviously the Irish uh, click. Uh, Prost, Zoom full. Uh, there's all sorts of things. I, you know, it's just it's just good to be drinking. <laughs> you know, I I knew you were going to be full of surprises, sir. So so yeah, that that, right. that ability to order, you know, being a, a general, I think in part is like being a diplomat, right? Especially in all the different stations you've been around the world. But you're very dedicated to your hometown town of St. Louis. I know you're a big sports fan there. Uh, the other question we ask of all our guests to get to know you a little bit. General Mark Hurtling, what was your very first car? Oh, uh, well, I thought you were going to go somewhere else with that, Paul. I thought you were going to talk about beer in St. Louis, and that's always a sore subject because after spending time in Germany, there's no way I'm going back to Bud or Bud Light, and I, I'm apologizing for that right off the top of my head, but that's something I drank in, in uh, my growing up years, either legally or illegally. My very first car that I purchased uh, coming out of the military academy was a uh, 1974 MGB. Wow. Wow. Yeah. What color uh, was it? it was, what, what color was it? Yeah. Sir? I don't know if I can do this on the show, but 
my wife used to call it baby shit yellow. Is that is that a bad uh, way, way to describe it? It was that yellowish sort of color of a of the early MGB series that traded off the the hard chrome bumper for the for the rubber bumpers. It was a great convertible though. It's great. You, when I took it to Germany as a second lieutenant, you would drive it all week and fix it all weekend because the electrical system was so bad on on the British made British Leylands. I think that's a very accurate description. So I appreciate the military precision with which you describe the color of that vehicle. You're a pretty yeah. tall guy. How did you fit in an MGB? An MGB? It, you know, a lot of people ask me that, but I had a small steering wheel, a, a custom steering wheel that they put on it for me. And when you're in that thing, you're just, you're lying down. So my, my length is in my leg. So you just, you were just flat out and the seat was all the way back. It was great. Uh, I'm 6'4". My wife is 4'11", so whenever we traveled any place, she's actually five foot, she, we'd always pack all the stuff in her side on, you know, on her foot. And she, it wouldn't bother her at all while I'd be stretched out in the car. But it was a great car, Paul. I loved it. Uh, we kept it for about six years, uh, traded it in when we had our first son, obviously. I tried to convince her to put you know, the baby seat on the luggage rack, but she wouldn't buy into that, you know? <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. I'd love to see a picture of you and your wife in Germany with you over six feet, with her at five feet, the convertible, the baby shit yellow car. I mean, that's kind of a, that, that, that's living a great life when you're, you know, a young lieutenant being stationed in Germany. There's a lot I want to talk about in the national security space. I want to come back to Germany in, in a second, but I do, I, I want to get your assessment. You've been all around the world. You've been a combat leader. You know, you, you're, you're, you're a strategic expert, but you're also an expert on America. You know, you're translating uh, on CNN and, and to other audiences on a regular basis. Can you give us your assessment of the, the, the battlefield, if you will, against the virus in Florida, where you are? That's like our Fallujah right now, right? You and I are in the Middle East at the same time. What's your assessment of the battle space in Florida and in America as a, as a military leader with your experience? Well, what, what I think we've unfortunately done, Paul, is we've replaced uh, our social contract, uh, our, our efforts to contribute to the society with this individual feeling of freedom uh, and, and, and this requirement to have freedom and Merca and all this other stuff and, and individual freedom as opposed to a social contract which contributes to everyone. Sure. In in working with the healthcare organization I'm, I'm with, you know, we started seeing some clusters of this in February. It started to ramp up in March and, and we were scared to death. I mean, there was some high anxiety within the healthcare with our trend lines and our modeling in where it would go and where it would take our hospital. Now, Orlando hasn't been hit as hard as the southern cities within Florida, but the state as a whole has not done well. Uh, the healthcare organizations have struggled across the, the state, and it's primarily because they've been overwhelmed. Uh, we have been able to, to, to get the supplies, to work the logistics, to build teams of different doctors and be ready for it. But there's been this tidal wave uh, on a couple of occasions of patients. And I think anyone who says, hey, I don't have to wear a mask, I don't have to social distance, I wish I could take all of those people for 10 minutes into one of our emergency rooms or into one of our ICUs and let them see what is going on because it is, it is bad. Now, it's not as bad, again, I say this, it's not as bad in our system than it is in some of our sister organizations, but you know, we just posted the highest death rate yesterday from what I understand, 
and I'm watching the trend lines every day, it's not good. Mm-hmm. And we haven't started school yet. Uh, that's going to be another problem area, I think. Uh, and anyone who says it's not going to be just doesn't understand the science of disease. Well, I, I made the big mistake early on in this of rereading a book I read about six years ago called The Great Influenza. Mm-hmm. And if, if you haven't read that about the 1918 not the 1917 pandemic, but the 1918 pandemic, it scares the bejesus out of you because we're experiencing exactly the same kind of things today. And yet we're not taking the precautions to try and end it as, as best we should as a nation. Sir, you know, I, I've made the case that this is a national security imperative. And, and I don't think that most Americans are thinking about it that way. I, right. I want to talk about Russia with you, of course. I want to talk about other national security threats. But in many ways, our back door is wide open, right? Our, our medical systems are overwhelmed. Our, our people are demoralized. Our military is occupied. And this is, in, in many ways, a dream for our enemies. So I've often used the hashtag, you know, our, our enemies are celebrating. And in the context of a great fight, it requires sacrifice. So when I hear that, you know, we have to give up college football, yeah, that sucks. But if it means our national security, it's necessary, right? If we've got to do these things in support of our national security, I believe it's necessary. But can you frame this up in the context of our overall national security? In your view, how vulnerable are we and where should we prioritize the pandemic versus Russia, North Korea, other threats? I'm very surprised, uh, that we haven't been taken advantage of as much as some could as of yet. I I put it in the context, Paul, of of the elements of power. You know, when you talk about national security and the elements of power, the first things that come to your mind, the so-called dime model, the diplomacy, information, military, and economics. Okay, get away from that and think about more elements of power. Your reputation on the world stage, your, your observation as being a nation that can actually get things accomplished. Your uh, other nations looking at you and viewing you as a society where people come together and solve problems and collaborate. In every one of those areas that are elements of national security, the way we are seen on the world stage, it's deteriorated over the last six months. We're seen as the class clowns right now. Uh, we are not doing well with the pandemic. And every nation in the world is watching us and they can't believe their eyes because we're the nation that put a man on the moon. And yet we're the worst in terms of dealing with a, with a health issue. And then you add to that the, the advertisement of where we stand on PPE, that the early stages of PPE, how we're you know, misjudging the, the scientists and, and countering their actions with opinions. It just, it's amazing. Uh, from my standpoint, having lived around the world, I know because I've talked to former colleagues in other countries, and, and they're asking me, what the hell is going on in your country? So yeah, that's just the reputational piece of it. Then when you talk about the ability of the military to react, the ability of the diplomatic corps to do the things they need to do when a great number of our embassies are not staffed with ambassadors, when our State Department is bleeding talent, when our military is being used in some ways that, that don't seem to be in line with our constitutional norms, all of those things should scare the heck out of us because they are also being reflected on the world stage. And it's not a good look in the mirror of the United States. Sir, one issue that I know you want to talk about and I've been covering that I don't think has gotten nearly enough national attention is the withdrawal of our 
troops in Germany, thousands of troops that have been pulled out under Trump's direction, um, you know, supported by the, now the Secretary of Defense. In my view, it's a gift to, to Putin. I think we continue to do things that, 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 that play to the advantage of Putin and others and other enemies who would like to see our forces shift in the way they are. But can you break down that uh, move particularly? Uh, you know, what's happening in Europe, what's happening in Germany, and for people who don't track on military affairs on a regular basis, you know, in the larger context, how does that change to our posture affect our overall strength and, and security? And does it play into the hands of Putin and our enemies? Yeah, I, I really actually believe it does play right into Putin's hands, but it also further divides uh, an alliance that we spent 70 years building and has some incredible strengths to it. And it was an action in my view, I'll, I'll state my opinion on this uh, from a military perspective. You know, Paul, I spent uh, eight of my last 10 years in the service in Europe uh, in various roles. The final role is the commander of U.S. forces in Europe. And during that time, we structured the force organization uh, with a great deal of work and brain power and coordination to meet the requirements of a force that is overseas to meet myriad contingencies, build alliances, and contribute to our security. So I, I guess the first thing I should have done for any of your listeners who think uh, that U.S. forces are in Europe to defend Germany against Russia that ended about 30 years ago. We are no longer on a defensive position to defend Europe or to defend Germany or any other country. We're part of a security alliance. Number two, for any of your listeners who are saying, well, they're not paying their own way. Well, that's not quite true either. They don't pay to a bank account. They promise to pay a certain amount of their GDP for, for security. Some of them can improve that way and they're heading in that direction with the primary goal of meeting the 2% of GDP by the year 2024. So they still have four years to do that. And when this first started in 2014 with Secretary Gates saying that this should be a, a NATO objective, and most nations in Europe have come back and said, you guys in the United States have to understand, we normally plan a five-year budget cycle. So we can't just do it next year. It's going to take us a while to get to this point. So with the president now announcing, oh, in the last year in 2019, uh, there's been more donated to Europe since I've been in office than anybody else. That's because it's the end of that five-year budget cycle that they promised in 2014. So it's just, you, you got to, and you know this, you've got to put a little bit more brain power and analysis into what's going on. Our forces in Europe give the United States, gives, gives the United States much more of a strategic advantage than pulling them out this. Uh, and we could go into the different dynamics of that and what, what they provide to the United States for our national security, but people aren't willing to listen to that uh, and, and because people don't even know what we have in Europe. We've, we've gone from 30,000, excuse me, 300,000 forces during the Cold War to 90,000 during the 1990s after Desert Storm and the wall coming down to about 30,000 U.S. Army soldiers there that are designed to do the kinds of contingencies, like what happened last week. I mean, the, the explosion in Lebanon, uh, that is a contingency operation for U.S. forces in Europe. When you don't have forces there, you can't help a nation that has some kind of a humanitarian disaster like that. I'm sorry, I, I tend to get emotional about this because I can't believe how dumb we are as a nation that we can't see through some of the arguments that are being presented on this particular issue. 
I, I share your emotion. And I think it, it's because we're paying attention. That's kind of one of the themes of this show, right? And, yeah. and I wonder, you know, people don't really consider it as a strategic lily pad, right? Like it's not just about uh, the right. Germans paying. Their, it's basically like them saying, hey, you can have a part of our backyard to set up your tent, right? And, and that's what we've been doing for generations now. But can right. you talk specifically, another issue in the news, you know, related to that region was, is what's happening in Belarus right now. Um, can you break down for folks what's happening in Belarus and why is it important to the U.S.? Well, they have had a president there by the name of Lukashenko, uh, who has been an authoritarian dictator for the last 26 years. Uh, of the 49 countries that are in Europe that were part of my area of operations when I was the commander of U.S. Force, US Army forces in, in Europe, uh, this was one of the 49 nations I never got to. Uh, I never traveled to Minsk. I went to all the other ones, one or two or three or a dozen times, been to Poland probably a dozen times. But this was one country we didn't go to because it was still using the Soviet model, even though they were no longer a Soviet satellite. And Lukashenko is, he's a dictator, you know, a, a dictatorial ruler. Uh, he was challenged by a, a group of, of uh, uh, progressives, one of which is Tinkoskaya. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing her name right. Um, and the vote count that came out of the elections last week were just ludicrous. Uh, he received something like 79% of the vote in, in terms of the publication afterwards, whereas there were literally millions of people marching against him. So the people in, in Belarus knew that it was a fixed election. Uh, election monitors were not allowed in the country. The press was not allowed in the country during uh, the election. So it was just a sham. And now what's happening, what we're seeing is a typical authoritarian reaction to protest of what was a fixed election. Uh, and I think it's another, it's going to be another, um, I wouldn't call it as much as the, uh, as the Arab Spring, but it certainly could cause a great deal of turbulence in Belarus and potentially backlash into Russia. And it seems like the kind of thing, if we had a, uh, a focused commander in chief and we had a, you know, a, a healthy functioning uh, State Department apparatus and, you know, coordination of, of all of our resources, it seems like the kind of thing we should be focused on as a nation, right? Because it or can how, be. Or how about even an ambassador yeah. in the country? That, that would be a good first start. Yeah. We don't have an ambassador in Belarus. Hell, we now don't even have an ambassador in Germany. Uh, and, and I could name the other countries in Europe where, where the charge is in charge uh, and most of the other ones. I mean, that, that's the communication piece and the information piece of national security policy and the diplomacy piece mixed in. And it's not happening. So, yeah, you're talking about the focus of President Trump. I, I'm not sure um, there is a focus anywhere uh, specifically other than on the elections. I, I think that's right. And I, I want to come back to your thoughts on the election in a minute, but sticking with expanding this discussion, you know, talking about Russia in particular, in my view, you know, there's been this, this mantra that they meddled with our elections. I, in my view, they attacked our elections. I would argue it's potentially an act of war. Like this is a very dynamic situation that hasn't ended. It's expanded. You know, Belarus is another symptom of that, our withdrawal of German forces in Germany. And now we've got another election coming that the Russians would love to see rip us apart. But can you give us your most updated assessment of the threat from Russia and how you think 
the the incoming commander in chief or if Trump is reelected, how they should respond to Russia? Yeah, well, what I'd say is I, I certainly am not privy to any classified classified documents today. The last one I read was in 2013. And at the time, we were seeing from about 20, 2006 until about 2012, when I left, or 13, there was an increasing dynamic by Mr. Putin to influence uh, not only the democratic institutions in various countries, but also put a wedge between the United States and all of our NATO partners. And whether he did that directly against us or individual partners writ large, he was going to do it. We have seen that happen in places like Moldova, Montenegro, Estonia in 2007. And I'll use that as an example because Estonia was attacked vehemently in their 2007 elections where a lot of their cybersecurity forces were undercut. They reacted to it. And over the last four, five, six, seven years, they have fixed it where they are doing so many things electronically with safeguarded systems that they are now kiddingly called e-Estonia as opposed to, you know, like email or, e, you know, and, and it's fascinating that they address the issue. We have not. And I agree with you that in 2016 and even before we were attacked by Russia, the evidence is pretty clear on that in various uh, national security and intelligence processes that have shown how we've been attacked. And I think it's going to be worse this time around. And yet it, that fire is being stoked by the current administration and being helped along, as we've seen recently, by several of our, of our elected uh, members of the Senate, which is just amazing to me. It is, uh, I think, an existential threat to our institutions and our society. So we should be de defending against it. So you and I have been on the air a few times together on CNN when when things were getting hairy. I think we were on air at the same time when when there was the the stare down with Iran, right in in, right. in the beginning of the year. And you know we're we're often called in to add perspective and, and analysis, but I also feel like you know that's missing right now in, in the national conversation, right? The, the country's talking extensively about our election, but they're not talking about whether or not that election is going to be fair, or if it's going to be protected, or if the Russians are going to be able to use it. As, as a divisive point for us. But back here at home, can you break down from your area of expertise and, and your experience, the national security apparatus beyond Trump? I've been very critical of, of, of Secretary of Defense Esper. I feel like consistently he sides with Trump on politics and not with our troops. But can you break down that second level and even the third levels down and the politicization of our military where we saw, uh, you know, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Milley, you know, pu pulled out into the streets during the protests uh, as Trump did his, his Bible-waving stunt. Can you break down, in, in your view, sir, um, what that all means and, and how potentially damaging it can be to our military, our national security, and the very fabric of our country? Well, it, yeah, I think it's not just the Defense Department, though. That's, that's the problem. There have been attacks against all of the normative institutions that are supposed to be Yes, they're political. Of course, they're political. The military is political. You know, it, it's different between being political versus being partisan. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, the military is political. So is the State Department. So is Homeland Security. Uh, but when you're diving into institutional norms and attempting to destroy them through rumors or insults or conspiracies like the intelligence community, like ju judicial system, 
Homeland Security, State Department, and as you just said, the Department of Defense, it causes people to be confused. And most of all, it causes people to lose trust Mm. in their leadership and in their democracy. And that's the problem I think we have right now. We have seen an erosion of trust. I would like to say to you, Paul, that I trust the government to get their act together and defend our election systems before November. But even as a military guy, I'm not sure I can say that right now. And that's damaging. Uh, you know, in any other, you can disagree with past presidents' ideology and their, the way they do business. But when you start hammering on the erosion of institutions and whether or not they are actually doing their job, which has been, you know, the, the reaction of, of this administration, that's when you have problems. And, and that's why you need someone to build that trust back up. And it's going to be very difficult to do that. But yeah, the other, the other thing I'd say is we have seen, I, I once had a guy in, in a, a previous administration, not Obama, but before that, I won't tell you any more than that, who told me that a president usually enters office with the A team. And then by the end of the first two years, he's on the B team. And then by the end of the first term, if they make it to a second, they're on their C team. And then hopefully they get a, a rush of new people in that are better. We started out, uh, I'm going to make an assessment with maybe the B minus team, maybe. And it's gone downhill fast. So we're in, in my view, we, we have a lot of people who don't know how to coordinate policy, who don't know how, and they don't have a strategy to live with. Hell, H.R. McMaster put out a national security strategy in 2017. You could disagree with some of the things that, said it, that were said in it. But one of the things I said to HR at the time was, this is great, HR, but your president isn't going to follow any of this stuff. Mm -hmm. And he hasn't. He hasn't. So that's the problem. There's a disconnect between if there is a strategy, what's being executed, who's doing the execution, and the daily uh, issues that the president brings up that causes people confusion. I'm really glad you brought that up because I think there's been a lot of analysis about Trump's decisions and Trump's personnel. Um, but, but I think the basic competence, the execution of making the machines run, right, whether that's the Department of Defense or the Treasury or the VA, that there's, there's a, an influx of people who don't have the experience to understand how to get things done that keep our country running and right. keep our people safe. And I think that, is, in my opinion, is maybe one of the most underreported things, just basic competence. In the military, you, know, you can always count on folks to be tactically and technically expert, to be uh, able to get a job done, a, a, the job they're assigned. But there are folks now in roles that just aren't even qualified to do the job. And, and that, I think, has had a real erosion in the trust of our institutions. But I don't want to let you go without asking you to talk specifically about that can, moment in can Washington. Can I add first? Please, go ahead. Can I add first something to that? Please. please. You know, it, as, as you're a leader in the military and you go from, from job to job and you go up the chain of command uh, with increased responsibility, there's this feeling, and I, I, I first realized this, although I knew it before, I realized that it was so palpable when I became a division commander about to take a division to Iraq. And, you know, I'm going to give you a dirty little secret, Paul. When I first became a division commander, I didn't really know what a division commander was supposed to do in all circumstances. So there's a requirement for a little bit of humility and depending on other people to help you out. That's also the problem with the current administration, because the people who take over aren't willing to, many of them, 
aren't willing to listen to the expert. There's a dearth of expertise. They just walk in saying, hey, I'm now in charge and I'm going to do anything I want, even though I really don't know how this works. I'm going to try and every administration has people who don't know what they're doing in different jobs. The key is how do they learn and adapt very quickly from mm-hmm. the experts that are in the organization? I just had to throw that in there. I'm glad you did, sir. I think it's, I think it's really important. And I want to ask you, related to that, to break down, in my view, one of the most damaging uh, situations that I've seen in a, in a presidency where it seems like there's damaging stuff happening every day. But that moment when Trump walked out of the White House, flanked by the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, flanked by the Secretary of Defense, using America's military, the National Guard, and other to clear out peaceful protesters. In my view, it was for, for folks that are scared of the military, right? For folks that are worried that in the worst case scenario, the military is going to be the ground force in Trump's race war or his or his 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 dictatorial expansion of power right that was the nightmare scenario in my view right and and in my view the worst situation you could potentially put american troops in right even more dangerous than being overseas having them be across from their own citizens their own brothers and sisters it it it, it sent every spidey sense in, in my body up because it, it didn't feel like america but can you break down that moment in particular and, and I also would, I'm encouraged a bit, sir, by the fact that folks did push back in behind closed doors. I think folks in the military and the retired general corps like you and others can be a guardrail for our democracy to say, hey, this is a line we won't cross. Some governors said they wouldn't give Trump National Guard troops. I'm sure, you know, commanders behind closed doors in the Pentagon said no. But can you break down that moment in particular and, and what you saw and what you think it means? Yeah, I I don't put, truthfully, I I know this is probably going to upset a lot of your listeners. I don't put as much power as many did behind that that particular scene of, you know, Millie and Esper walking out with Trump across the street to St. John's. I think they were caught up in the moment. And they, you know, they're trying to support their president, which all military guys do. But he did. But neither one of them, I think, realized where they were being led at the time. Now you can call that dumb, you can call it immature, you can call it just a, a real random act of idiocracy. But I think it was the momentum that carried them there. And when they got there, they realized, "Holy crap, this is not good. We are now being used." It was fascinating to me that both General Milley, uh, not as much Sec- Secretary Esper, walked it back. Shortly thereafter, Milley did an apology to the National War College, to his peers, really. I mean, guys that were in uh, National Pension. That was a big deal to me. So that may have been one of those lessons learned uh, that all generals need to learn some, some, someday in their, in their taking on of power. That, hey, there are some things you just have to do uh, and not do that, that keep you pure. Uh, but, but I really think the walk across the street during that was, it was, I, I don't want to, this word's going to sound too forgiving, but it was almost accidental. Mm. And they realized how bad it was probably during the walk. And then they realized how bad it appeared after the walk. So I don't think you'll catch Millie in that situation anymore. General Millie, I don't know what you'll see with Secretary Esper. Um, he, he is seen since that event to have put up more of a uh, a little bit of a wall between him and the administration when it comes to 
policies regarding the use of sold the use of military force and others. Uh, so maybe he's learned a great deal from that, and mm-hmm. and thank God he did, truthfully, because that was a horrible scene. Sir, you you you're a a voice of conscience on television. You know, you do a lot of leadership training. You're a mentor to many. Uh, and, and you're human like the rest of us and you have emotions. Uh, you know, the theme of this show is if you're not angry, you're not paying attention and <laughs> what you choose to do with that, with that anger is, is what I think determines what kind of leader and what kind of citizen you can be. Um, but, but I want to ask you the question I ask of all our guests, you know, General Mark Hurtling, what makes you angry? Um, people showing a lack, my biggest pet peeve is a lack of integrity. Mm-hmm. When people lie or when they try and sway based on spin. And unfortunately, because that's always been my pet peeve, when people aren't transparent and address issues with candor and talk facts versus opinions. I mean, I used to get mad at my staff uh, in combat or in user when they would give me their opinion on things. I said, okay, that's great. That's great, your opinion. Give me some facts and back it up. Tell me what we're going to do about it. Uh, that's number one. Number two that makes me mad is whining, you know, complaining without any plan for action. Uh, and we're seeing more and more of that daily, aren't we, Paul? I mean, in terms of how many things are wrong being given to us by the present administration, but not providing any way to write it. Hell, if the electoral system is messed up and mailing ballots are a threat, which they're not, then tell us, tell me what you're going to do about it. Tell me, you're, you're the friggin' president. You know, I expect action from you. That's a part of leadership is to act. It isn't just to complain. I mean, I, I used to beat up my staff whenever they'd come in and say, hey, we've got a big problem. Oh, really? Then tell me what your solution is, and maybe we can start attacking it from that. Don't give me problems. Give me potential solutions. Mm. We're not getting any potential solutions. We're just getting opinions and whining and standing up and spin and how great things are when we all know things aren't great. I, I, I thank you for that, sir. I mean, I've talked a lot of, in the show and in other appearances about command climate. And we talk about that and, you know, and think about that and train about that and, and ponder on that when you're coming up as a leader. But can you break down in a, in a really focused way, what, what's your assessment of Trump as a leader? If he was yeah. a you know, second lieutenant under your command, you were writing his OER, Right, his 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 his, his assessment as 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 an officer. Um, can you break down not you know not not the emotional stuff that I think kind of floods through through CNN and other places, but but what's your assessment of his of his leadership? Well, it's interesting because I teach that Paul, uh, you know, to doctors, yeah. and I break it down. Believe it or not, I use the the Army Field Manual on leadership to show them the style of leaders, and and really the Army. ADRP 6-22, yes, that's a real live document for those people who aren't in the Army out there listening, breaks down the, the leadership attributes as being character, presence, and intellect. And within each one of those attributes, in character, you have the ability to use your background, understand your own background, to, have, to do a self-assessment. You have your personal values, what you believe in, and you can state what they are. You have a vision for how you want to live your life. And uh, you have a bit of, if you're a leader in a professional organization, you have humility and empathy is all part of your character. Those are things that are part of the character listed in our doctrinal manual. Then there's the area of presence, 
which says, this is how you appear to people to be. Now, character, what you say you are versus how you appear are two different things. Mm -hmm. And what leaders try and do is push those two things together. Mm -hmm. So who you appear to be is who you really are. Uh, and that's the element of leadership that's kind of important. And then the last one in, in intellect is, are you adaptive? Do you take advice from the experts? Do you have a sense of the world around you? Do you have an intellectual curiosity? You can give your grade to our president on each one of those things. And, and what I tell you is he comes up lacking in several areas in my view. So those are the attributes. The competencies are, how do you communicate to your teams? How do you build trust? And how do you steward the organization? That's under the category of lead. And then the second category under the competencies is development. How do you take your team and help them achieve the kinds of things you want them to achieve? And also, how do you self-develop to learn and grow every day? And then the third competency is, how do you act? How do you, how do you make stuff happen? What, what are your accomplishments? Again, if you evaluate the president on those three attributes and three competencies that I just named, they come out of our field manual, you can give your own grade, which I have done. <laughs> Interestingly enough, Paul, what I, what I was asked once by Anderson Cooper back in 2016 to evaluate both candidates, uh, both uh, Mr. Trump and Ms. Clinton, and I used those three and three to do that. Both of them, as all leaders do, fall short in some areas. But the areas where you fall short, those are the things you should try and constantly improve mm. while using the strengths to your advantage. And, you know, if you evaluate people against those, I think you'll see who the better leaders are. And the person of character is the one, uh, the, the character of the individual drives everything else. I think that's a fantastic and incredibly useful uh, framework. You know, if folks are listening and they're evaluating, you know, being a leader for their family or for their business or looking at candidates in their area, I mean, that's a framework that can guide it. Part of why I was, I was very excited to talk to you. So if we use that framework, you know, uh, Lieutenant or candidate uh, or cadet Trump is probably not being recommended for promotion. Another uh, cadet or, or Lieutenant that's in seek of a promotion is now Kamala Harris. So can you, you know, similarly using that framework, what's your assessment now that she is um, Biden's pick for his, his vice presidential uh, nominee? What's your assessment of her as a leader? And in particular, given your expertise, um, she's never been in the military. She hasn't served, served on armed services. This is something that I talk a lot about. I don't think is talked about enough. What's your assessment of her, of her capacity? Well, first of all, her, her ability uh, and experience and her capacity as commander in chief. And is she ready? You know, if Biden's not a young guy, we have to scenario plan. We do that in the military, right? The how more scenario from we were soldiers once, and, you know, okay, you're dead. Now you're in charge. You're dead. You're in charge. God forbid something happens and Biden is elected. She's going to be in charge. In your view, how ready is she going to be? Uh, I, I don't know, uh, but I think she has the qualities of leadership that will help her become ready. And here's, I go back to my example of me being a division commander. Is she ready to be president tomorrow? No, I wasn't ready to be a division commander tomorrow, but I had a bunch of folks around me who would help. And I certainly didn't say when I became a division commander in combat, I know more than all the Al-Qaeda guys on all the other side, or I know more than the private down in the foxhole, or I know right. more than that tank commander. 
you, you've got to trust the people and surround yourself with the capable input that will help you make tough decisions. But you make those tough, tough decisions going back to that very first attribute of character and how you see the world, what your values are. The influence of your personal background will certainly bias you one way or another, but how do you keep that under control? And, you know, the, the things that hit the president's desk, I can't imagine the kinds of problems he faces. But I do know this. If it's an easy problem that can be solved by somebody else, it normally doesn't bubble up to him or her. Mm. So that person at the top really has to have a, a small cubby or a large cubby of people around them helping them out that are self-serving, that are not self-serving, excuse me, who are selfless and who are contributing to the nation as opposed to those who are contributing to their own wealth and advancement. So there's going to be a lot of, uh, of, of wargaming here on who would do what in a Biden administration, right? Especially if you look at the candidates, everybody from, you know, Pete Buttigieg to Susan Rice, right? All the folks that were rumored to be finalists for VP. But now when you think about casting a potential Biden administration, something that I think needs more focus is Secretary of Defense. It's such a critical role. We see that now with, with Esper. We've seen it you know, across the board on everybody from, from Gates to Rumsfeld. But I think it also determines uh, what kind of president you're going to be, wh- who that partner is going to be. Who do you think will be the finalists uh, in, in, in a Biden administration? We're going to hear names like Michelle Flournoy. We may hear names like Admiral McRaven, right? But, but who do you think will be uh, names we hear, whether it's those or others over the course of the next few months who could be uh, Secretary of Defe- Defense in a Biden administration? Well, th- this is the kind of thing that the president, uh, if it's President Biden, he has to say, who are those people, back to those leadership competencies, who are the people that I trust that has, have the character and the values and also have at least a little bit of experience, hopefully a lot more than just a little bit of experience, in how the largest bureaucracy in our government is run and an understanding of how big this behemoth of the Defense Department is and how many lives it affects and how much it affects our national security. Um, And and by the way, how do you turn it around? How do you get back to the proper approach to civil-military relations? How do you get the right people? It's not just the top job. It's how do you also get the right people in the second level and the third level and all the ASDs and DASDs and all that other stuff within the Department of Defense. The same thing is going to be true, truthfully, I think, in the State Department. The State Department, from what I can see in my assessment, and it's proven by others, has been gutted. And and we will be an inflection point with diplomacy on the world stage after uh, these four years. So that will be as critical. At the same time, you mentioned before the threats to our homeland. Homeland security has been somewhat dysfunctional uh, over the last three years. Uh, Kelly was, was, had it under control when he was there, but it's gone downhill ever since. Um, so all of those organizations, you're going to have to find the person with a, a, a professional approach, with an understanding that it's about our nation versus it's about themselves. Someone who doesn't have the ego, and everybody has ego, so you just have to balance that, but also someone who really understands the intricacies of what these departments do. And that's going to be really hard. And I know, um, I'm sure, the 
presidential candidates on both, well, on, on the Democratic side is really trying hard to pick those right people right now. And I don't know who they are. I mean, I, there are a lot more people than I know that are out there that could do those jobs. I think when, when Trump came in, he recognized the populism of the military. He's always recognized that, right? And he's manipulated it at times. But, yeah. you know, when he came in and wanted to project a sense of competence, he had his generals, right? He had McMasters and he had the Kellys and he had, uh, um, you know, Mattis and, and these folks that he put out in front in, in a casting, right? And said, these are my generals that will bring authority and competence and project strength. And I think there may be an opportunity for Biden to do something similar, but maybe a bit more nuanced where he says, here are my, you know, war, my citizen soldiers, my warrior citizens, my Tammy Duckworths, my Pete Buttigieg's, my Tulsi Gabbard's, right? Folks that have been on that radar, but also represent uh, a new generation of leadership that's not just got stars on their sleeve. So the question I do want to ask you that you're in a unique position to answer is people have this idea of what generals are, right? And I think Trump has kind of gassed that up a little bit, this monolith, right? But, but can you really maybe break down what you think? Uh, what, what, what advantages, uh, and, and again, they're not a monolith, they're all different, so different, but, but as a general yourself, what are, what are the skills that you do uniquely bring to a political landscape, and, and what are the challenges that a general can bring um, in, in a political landscape? Well, I think, and I'm going to generalize, because this, what I'm about to say doesn't apply to all generals. Certainly, yeah. there are good and bad generals, um, but I think for the most part, they certainly have a training in leading organizations, uh, large organizations. Uh, one of the reasons I was hired at this healthcare organization is because a guy at Disney told my CEO that he should hire an army general, which surprised the heck out of this healthcare CEO. And he said, why should we do that? And he said, because they understand the scope and scale of big problems uh, and they know how to deal with big problems. Um, so those two things. The third thing is um, that they have the ability to want to learn and grow within the organization. They, they reach out and find the experts to help them because they know they can't do it all in a big organization. Um, but, but there are some downsides to, to some generals as well. Uh, some certainly have big egos. Uh, some sometimes don't speak up because we are trained in the art of civil military relations where the boss gets to make the decision and we support it after giving advice and, and per, trying to, to influence one way or another. But once the decision is made, we've got to do it. And sometimes that's harmful. Sometimes you've got to continue to struggle in, in pushing back. Um, but I also think there's a, there's a great deal of, I don't want to use the word patriotism because th that's been so bastardized over the last three years. But there is a desire to serve the nation, uh, at least with most, most generals. Um, so that piece of contributing to something, <clears throat> excuse me, bigger than yourself uh, becomes key. Uh, but, but I would be hesitant, Paul, uh, to anybody that's suggesting that if Biden is elected president, that he immediately mirrors the actions of President Trump four years ago, where he goes out and hires a bunch of generals. I think that would actually be very dangerous. Uh, so he should, he should use retired generals or active generals sparingly um, in terms of his administration, and probably none of them in the Defense Department, if I could say that. Mm. I, I think that's, that's a really important perspective. And, you know, you've advised presidents 
you've been uh, wounded in combat yourself, right? I mean, you've had a pretty wide range of experiences and you always maintain a sense of positivity. Um, you inspire others. You've inspired me. You've been very generous to me and many other leaders as a mentor and as a friend. And another question I want to ask you, sir, because this is the other question all our guests get. General Mark Hurtling, what makes you happy? Um, the, the biggest thing, well, that's a great question. I got to figure out how to address this. I get all choked up and emotional when I see success in people. When people achieve things, uh, I mean, last night I, I try and be nonpartisan. I try and be, you know, see both sides. But I'll be honest with you, I got emotional when uh, Kamala Harris was named as the vice president. Yeah. Not because Biden picked a vice president, but because here's a black woman, and it was obvious, obviously an emotional moment for the people of color in the United States and for women throughout the country who are doing so much, not just in national security, but our nation as a whole. Hell, the, the women that we have as doctors in our organizations are friggin' nailing it on a daily basis. They're good. And they should be given that chance. I think um, Kamala Harris is, is probably going to be, she is an excellent choice, but just the fact that she succeeded in being picked made me emotional. Uh, graduations from high school get me all charged up because I see the potential in kids. Um, things that folks are allowed to do in their lives are a big deal to me. Uh, you know, you, you know about this, I think, Paul, but I have this box that I always carry around with me. It's, it's both General Dempsey and General Scaparotti and I all have it. It was something we put together uh, in our tour together in Iraq. And it contains all the cards of soldiers that were killed under our command. Now, my box has 253 cards in it with pictures of soldiers. And I look at that box every day and I say, where would these people be today? Uh, where would 22-year-old uh, Rowdy Inman be if, if he hadn't been killed back in 2004? Would he have a family? Would he have young kids? Would he be relishing in their... So that kind of stuff makes me emotional. The top of the box says, make it matter. So folks who make it matter by advancing our population, by advancing our people, our immigrants, our young folks, our women, our people of color, uh, that's a big deal to me. That makes me happy. That's probably a much longer answer than you wanted. Sorry about that. Oh, that's a fantastic answer. I mean, that, that's, that's one of the great reasons why I wanted to have you on this, this, this show. So you could talk about that and things like that, that I think are really important in a moment like this. And I want to ask you to just one, expand on one thing, sir. There are some folks who are, who are having a hard time right now. This, for many in this country, it's a low point. Um, you know, and the, the election's going to make it worse in some ways. You know, you, you've been a great leader in inspiring people through hard times. For many Americans, this is one of the hardest times they've ever experienced. For our country, this is one of the hardest times we've ever experienced. You're great at motivating people and helping lead them through adversity. What's your message now as kind of a locker room coach for America and for Americans who are listening, who may be having a hard time, they're struggling, it feels like Groundhog Day, the pandemic, the protests, all of it. But what's your message to them on, on how to help get through this tough time for us all? We're going to get through it. That's my message. Uh, you know, the nation, if, if you're an amateur student of history like I am, our nation has been through this before. Uh, I mean, I, 
as a younger man, I saw the, the race riots and the draft riots of the late 60s and early 70s. That was a pretty tough time. And a president resigning and corruption in government and all those things. Uh, you read history. I read Grant's Chern- or Chernow's grant a few months ago. And boy, he, during his presidency back in the 1800s, he went through some hell. Uh, with Reconstruction and people asking all black people to move back to Liberia. It was disastrous. I mean, the things he, he tried to, to, um, to quell and reverse. So we've been through this before. And what we found is every time we've been through hard times, it, it sharpens our character. Uh, the Black Lives Matter movement of a few weeks ago, I mean, that's really kind of snapped a lot of people to attention and help them realize how bad things really are, that perhaps they didn't realize it before. People of, white people, not uh, people of color. But it's helped them realize how far apart we are. And hopefully, you know, those kinds of things will help us pull together as a nation. We can achieve anything as a country. We really can. I mean, I've seen that happen. Uh, We just have to understand that we can, but only if we come together as opposed to being too divisive. So maybe, maybe, just maybe, hear me out on this, the last three years have been a good thing for us, that they have caused us to reflect on who we really are and who we really want to be as a nation. You know, we, we establish our values in things like the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, but we also have seen those values displayed in the Gettysburg Address and the, and the Four Freedoms speech by Roosevelt and the first... Uh, inaugural speech by Kennedy and other things that tell us who we should be or who we aspire to. We've got to get back to understanding what those values mean and not be so self-centered. And maybe uh, we'll do that in combining our actions to make a better nation after this. Thank you for that, sir. And uh, whoever is the president in January would be smart to seek your counsel and, uh, and try to drag you out of Florida into Washington <laughs> or wherever they can. Um, but in I'm the meantime, very happy not here, Paul. Thanks so much for your uh, interest in national defense. <laughs> in the meantime, I would normally do this in person, but I want to present to you some gifts virtually. So you know, okay. we'll, we'll have to have a, a rain check, and maybe your MG convertible and my Camaro convertible, and we can we can have a a, a drag race for charity or something. But um, a couple it. things I'm going to send your way down in Florida via the post via the post office. I'm going to start sending yeah, stuff to the United States post office, which needs more support right now since right. it's not getting it from the president. But first I'm going to send you some uh, angry Americans gear made by uh, the, the veterans of Oscar Mike out in Chicago, American made stuff that's super comfortable. And you can, I know you work out all the time. Uh, you're, you're, you're a great motivator in the fitness world. So maybe that'll help you. And when you come back from your run or from your working out, you can have some Bravo Sierra uh, stuff. Some uh, so, some oh, hygiene body wipes, that's what I need. antibacterial wipes and deodorant um, support. They they donate to MWR in the military, and then uh, for your for your drinking uh, enjoyment, oh. some uh, Uncle Nearest eighteen eighty four uh, American made whiskey that we'll have over to you. It's a great story. They're a big supporter of this show. Some some small batch whiskey from Uncle Nearest headed your way. And then last but not least, this is our Rorschach test of the show um, okay. that you will also get peeps. And we have, oh, three, we have three colors, blue, yellow, and pink. And the question yeah. we ask of all our guests, General Mark Hurtling, what color of peeps would you pick and why? Blue, yellow, or pink? Yellow because it's a reminder of my youth. Uh, it was a Easter uh, 
normality that was always in the Easter basket. It's the only kind that I like. I've never even tried the, the pink or the blue one. So I'm, I'm going to have to forego those. <laughs> well, we'll send them all to you just in case. That way you can, okay. you can try them for the first time. But, uh, sir, I am so grateful for your leadership. I'm so grateful for your friendship. Thank you for your example. Thank you for being a voice for this country in some really tough times. Um, I'm honored to know you. I'm really grateful you can join us, especially right now, given all that's going on in the world. Appreciate you making the time uh, and all you do for this country, all that you did in uniform, and even more so all that you're doing now that you're out of uniform. It's a real inspiration. You represent the best of what this country is all about. Uh, and, and I'm really grateful for your leadership and, and your patriotism and for joining us. Well, I appreciate all of that, Paul. That's very kind of you to say. It, it was a hell of a ride when I was wearing the uniform, and it's even uh, nice now when I'm not wearing the uniform. So life is good to the Hurtling clan. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. You guys, I'll, see, I'll see you soon in, uh, in, in the Hollywood Squares boxes on CNN with Cuomo or, or somebody else. Until then, uh, thank you again for your leadership. Stay frosty, sir. You got it. Thank you, buddy. Appreciate it. There's plenty of reason to be angry, but there's also a way to turn it, a way to channel it, a way to harness it, and there's always a way to make an impact, just like General Hurtling taught us. And you know the deal. It's time to turn that anger, sadness, frustration, inspiration, agony into positive impact. It's time to be a helper. Always look for the helpers. There will always be helpers, you know, even just on the sidelines, because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope. Every show, we offer a way to convert that righteous anger into positive action. An action that channels your energy, makes you feel good, and makes a difference. And like this show, our actions are always packed with the four I's, integrity, information, impact, and inspiration. And we really need to step up right now and deliver. My grandfather came to this country as a young man, not speaking the language and not knowing anyone. He'd go on to serve in the army in World War II in the South Pacific for three years. And when he came home, he continued to serve, like millions of others, by working at the post office. My grandfather worked at the post office for almost 30 years. My grandfather was there roughly 50 years ago this month when the post office department changed its name to the United States Postal Service. That's when the post office department became an independent establishment of the executive branch of the United States government. Postal career service was established and political appointments to the postal service jobs were prohibited, a framework that stands today. But 50 years ago, many postal workers were exhausted, overworked, underpaid, and hungry, and they had no negotiating power. But they were energized by the civil rights movement, and postal workers in New York went on strike. That strike sparked a movement that spread across the country, and more than 200,000 postal workers refused to deliver the mail unless things changed. And that situation turned into the largest wildcat strike in U.S. history. A wildcat strike means they didn't have the approval of their union leaders to walk off the job, and it was technically illegal. 
It was against the law for federal employees to strike and punishable at that time by a year in jail, a $1,000 fine, and an automatic firing. So it was risky for them. And President Nixon tried to come down hard. He ordered him back to work. He threatened to crush the strike. And he ordered the National Guard to deliver the mail, which did not go well. The strike lasted eight days. And all this pressure led to the Postal Reorganization Act of 1970, which is when the Post Office Department turned into the USPS, guaranteeing collective bargaining rights for its workers. Fifty years ago, postal workers stepped up to defend themselves. Now, they need you to step up to defend them, because they're under attack. They're under attack from President Mayhem. The Postal Service is the most popular government agency in America. It has been for a long time. The latest Gallup poll found that 74% of Americans rated the post office as excellent or good. NASA only got 60%. The IRS, 50%. And despite years of cash problems, mostly the fault of Congress, most people liked their good old mail carrier. America couldn't function without the Postal Service. It's the oldest federal agency and the only one explicitly authorized in the Constitution. Ben Franklin himself created it to support the Revolutionary War effort. There are 26,400 post offices, and they handle nearly 150 billion pieces of mail annually, or 47% of the mail in the entire world. UPS and FedEx could not possibly handle that volume, especially not to far-flung locations in rural areas that just wouldn't be profitable. Not even for parcels, as the USPS accounts for 40% of Amazon shipping. And the Postal Service has seen a huge spike in demand for package delivery as people shop more online under the quarantine. And they serve another important function. They empower people to vote by mail. So Congress authorized the Postal Service to borrow $10 billion as part of a coronavirus relief package. But Treasury Secretary and renowned asshole Steve Mnuchin is refusing to hand over the money until it turns its operation over to him, which is ridiculous and probably illegal. Now, some of this is driven by Trump's hatred for Amazon chief Jeff Bezos. And Trump has this idea that it has to be profitable and it's not a government service. And if you're not tracking, in May, Trump did what Trump does. He put a crony in charge, a guy named Louis DeJoy. Now, Louis DeJoy is the first postmaster in two decades without any experience at the United States Postal Service, just like Betsy DeVos at education had never been a teacher. And like other appointees, he had massive financial conflicts of interest, including investments in Postal Service contractors and competitors like UPS and a trucking company, J.B. Hunt. So DeJoy and his wife have assets of as much as $75 million in Postal Service competitors or contractors. So as soon as he took office, DeJoy started chopping up the post office months before an election. He's limited overtime, he's instructed mail carriers to leave mail behind that slows down their delivery route, and he's required that they park no more than four times along their delivery route. Meanwhile, Trump's demanded the Postal Service quadruple its rates on packages. And here's another casualty of these attacks. Veterans. Veterans like my grandfather was. The Postal Service is one of the largest employers of veterans nationwide. Nearly 100,000 military veterans are employed by the Postal Service, or about 15% of its entire workforce. And the agency estimates that at least 60% of its veteran employees have a disability rating. In the military, it's about getting the mission done. And it's the same thing with the Post Office. And there's another factor. The vast majority of VA prescriptions are fulfilled by mail. 
But as the Postal Service delays mount, more and more veterans are reporting long wait times to receive critical medication, and VA staff is saying the problem's growing. Abby Bennett at Connecting Vets has continued to stay on this story and do an excellent job. So the VA's mail-order pharmacy system processes nearly half a million prescriptions daily. And each working day, more than 330,000 vets get a package of prescriptions in the mail. Veterans who live further away from VA medical facilities, especially in rural and remote areas of the country, depend on their mail-order prescriptions to live. And veterans nationwide are reporting delays to their mail-order prescriptions, to connecting vets, and to other members of the media. In recent weeks, veterans say their wait times have doubled, tripled, or worse. Some reported wait times as long as three weeks or more for prescriptions that used to take just a few days. And none of them have gotten an explanation from the VA. The hashtag is Save the Post Office. There's a new bill aimed at reversing organizational and structural changes undertaken by the Postal Service by the new postmaster that was just introduced by Congress. The Delivering for America Act was introduced by Carolyn Maloney in New York, and it's the latest action over the agency's cutbacks and slowdowns ahead of the 2020 election that's already been upended by the pandemic. So the Postal Service is under attack. They're in a crisis caused by the coronavirus that's being exacerbated by attacks by Trump, and Congress needs to act urgently. The Postal Service could run out of money soon, and the new Postmaster General is already using the crisis to slow down mail and packaging, sorting, and delivery. And you can help us fight back. Call your senators today and tell them to support at least $25 billion in stimulus funding for our Postal Service. Tell them to defend the Postal Service. You can go to congress.gov. If you've never done it, it's a great website. You can go in there and put your address. It pops right up, and it'll connect you with your members of Congress, your two senators, and your representative. Do it. If there was a time for you to take action, this is it. It's key to our elections. It's key to our economy. It's key to our veterans. It's key to the fabric of America. An attack on the United States Postal Service is an attack on our veterans who served in the armed forces and continue to serve today. From the beginning of America's existence, the post office has delivered for America. And this fall, as millions cast their ballots by mail, they have the most important delivery for America yet. But before the Postal Service can deliver for us, they need you to deliver for them. Be a helper. Step up and defend the post office. Go to congress.gov, contact your representatives, and tell them to defend the post office now. It's time to deliver, people. Step up and defend the Postal Service. And if you got a story to tell or a resource to share, find us on social media, use the hashtag AngryAmericans, and let me know. Don't just be angry, be active. Big thanks to a few folks that made this little party happen. General Mark Hurtling, follow him on Twitter. Look for him on CNN, where he is, of course, a national security intelligence and terrorism analyst. Get his book, Growing Physician Leaders, Empowering Doctors to Improve Our Healthcare. But my deepest thanks to him for his time, his expertise, and for his decades of service to our country. Thanks, of course, to the Righteous Media team. Righteous Media powers angry Americans and everything we do. And that team is powered by Mighty Mercy Rich, creative Chris Rosenthal, and the brilliant Bill Schultz, who does his audio magic over every episode, and this one in particular. My thanks to our friends at Uncle Nearest, 
If you haven't heard, Uncle Nearest is the most awarded new American premium whiskey brand in U.S. history, garnering 75 awards since it debuted in July 2017. The whiskey is now available in all 50 states and in 12 countries, while shipping to a total of 148 countries. It's in more than 10,000 stores, bars, and restaurants, and they have a 270-acre distillery in Shelbyville, Tennessee, dubbed by a member of the press as Malt Disney World. So it's undoubtedly a great place to party when the pandemic is over. In the meantime, check them out at UncleNearest.com and support your local post office and get them to deliver you some Uncle Nearest now. Also delivering for us throughout this pandemic have been our friends who are the vigilant Patreon members. Thank you to all of you who continue to step up, who continue to support this work. I hope you enjoy the behind-the-scenes videos. I thank you for your connection and for your support. Keep spreading the word. If you're new to Patreon, check out Patreon. It's a way for you to get behind the scenes on this show and everything we're doing at Righteous Media. It's a way to connect with other members and to get exclusive access to lots of cool upcoming stuff. But my thanks to all of our Patreon crew. And it's time for Thank a Listener. Every week, I thank a few angry Americans just for listening. You all are an interesting crew, an amazing crew. So give us a call and I'll make you famous. I always want to hear from you. We have a hotline. It's 833-33-ANGRY, 833-33-ANGRY. Call, tweet, post on social, and you know what'll happen. I'll make you famous. All right, so give us a call, send us a tweet, post on social, and I'll make you famous. Like Joe Carino of Cleveland Heights. Joe is born in Akron. He is a husband, dad, aspiring coach, and he sent a tweet after the last episode. A lot of great feedback after the last episode, and Joe led the way. He said, Paul Rykoff, Angry Americans, really enjoyed the pod with Rex Chapman. My first visit to your pod, but I'll come back for more. Inspiring comeback story. Love the discussion of discipline. Be safe, fellas. Thank you, Joe. Back at you. Hope you enjoy the rest of this summer out in Cleveland Heights. Got lots of friends in Cleveland Heights and Cleveland, Ohio. My thanks to my friend Joe Carino. Also, thanks to TV Lady Media and the founder, Lori Berlin. My friend Lori Berlin, who's from New York, uh, she used to work at ESPN uh, and Time Life. She's dabbled elsewhere, and she is always strategizing, digitizing, and sharing. She's a founder of her own company. She worked at ESPN for 16 years, and uh, she supports lots of great organizations, including the Tom Coughlin J Fund, and she's a board member at the Ray Pfeiffer Foundation. I met her through our amazing friend of the pod, Rob Sarah of the FDNY, uh, Lori and the whole crew at the Ray Pfeiffer Foundation. Big shout out to them. Thanks for all the support and definitely continue to support them. Donate, share, spread the word. But my thanks to our friend Lori Berlin at TV Lady Media. And she tweeted, getting to know Paul Rykoff has enriched my life. Getting to see daily tweets from Rex Chapman has brightened up my life. You can listen to the two of them chat on Angry Americans. Spoiler alert, one of them enjoys Coors Light on the Rocks. Right, Lori? Coors Light on the Rocks? Have you tried it yet? If you guys haven't tried it, try it. As I told Rex, I also recommend that you try Cider on Ice, a perfect summer treat. But also a summer treat, a real summer treat, was hearing from John McNutt. John McNutt is in South Taranaki District, New Zealand. 
He tweets at Nuthouse1961, and he says, never take criticism from people you would not go to for advice. I really like that. But John sent us a tweet all the way from New Zealand, which has been leading the way on the coronavirus and always leads the way on rugby. Uh, he tweeted to us, Rex Chapman, just listened to your interview with Paul Rykoff, which I really enjoyed. Sounds like you're up for random content. So sending through a video of our pre-match hakas from my young bloke's old school played a couple days back. So this is John's crew of rugby players doing a haka, the traditional pre-match dance. It's amazing. It's awesome. If you don't know rugby, you should Google hakas and check it out. And here is John's haka from New Zealand and what it sounds like. How cool is that? Also cool was hearing from our last listener that I want to give a shout out to, the great actor Vincent D'Onofrio. Vincent D'Onofrio of New York, New York, the actor, producer, director, writer. You know him as Detective Robert Gorin, the lead character in the TV series Law and Order, Criminal Intent. And of course, you know him as Private Leonard Gomer Pyle Lawrence in Full Metal Jacket. A fantastic actor, fantastic artist, and he saw the Rex Chapman show, he listened to the Rex Chapman show, and he tweeted, damn straight, Rex alive, baby, hallelujah. Rex has got that incredible comeback story. If you haven't heard it, go back and listen to the last episode. But my deepest thanks to Vincent D'Onofrio for his support and to all of you for tuning in. Thank you for sending the feedback. Keep it coming. Use the hashtag AngryAmericans and sound off. I'm thankful to all of you. You all can party with me anytime when this pandemic is over. We will have a celebration party, probably at the Classic Car Club in New York. You'll all be invited. Vincent D'Onofrio will be invited. Rob Sarah will be invited. Rex Chapman will be invited. General Hurtling will be invited. And all of you will definitely be invited. You can party with me anytime. Party rock is in the So my thanks to all of you, and my thanks, as always, to my family, my amazing wife, Lori, and our two boys, our little lion and our baby bear. And this week is my son, Ryder, our little lion's fifth birthday. He's been counting the days for about 360 days or so. Five is a very big birthday. It's not just the highlight of his summer, but of his whole year. And he wants for his birthday a remote control Tyrannosaurus Rex that's as big as daddy, which is a tough one to find in the pandemic. Uh, he also wants chocolate chip pancakes, which will be a bit easier. He wants to go to Monster Jam, which unfortunately is going to be impossible. And he wants his family, which we're going to figure out. It won't be the same, but it'll still be fun and it'll be virtual and it'll be a celebration. And it'll be a part of an entire month of partying in our house, at least. So happy birthday to him and to all the kids out there, especially. But to anyone else who had a birthday or has a birthday this summer, another year above ground is always a reason to celebrate in my book. 
And please continue to celebrate this show. Tell your friends to check this podcast out. It's a party of politics, news, and culture every week. And if you're on an Apple device, celebrate this show and leave me a quick review. Subscribe now. That will also be a celebration. And you'll have it hot and fresh waiting for you every Thursday. That is reason to celebrate also. Seriously, do it. Do it. Do it. Keep the feedback coming. I see you. I hear you. I'm with you. You can, of course, go to angryamericans.us, sign up for our newsletter, check out the video of this show and all our past shows, lots of great extra content there, and check out our YouTube page. Chris Rosenthal is cranking out amazing videos every week. You can see them on our Instagram, on our Facebook, on our Twitter, but especially our YouTube page. We've got over a year of content there now, and there's some really cool stuff, and we'll continue to adapt, improvise, and overcome. We will keep the party going so stay tuned subscribe for free and share and we will keep this movement growing week by week by week it's okay to be angry especially now and know that you're not alone we're all a little angry that's because we're paying attention and even in the toughest times we're finding a way to party in whatever way we can i'm your host paul reikoff thanks for listening stay vigilant america wear a damn mask even if it's your birthday happy birthday rye i love you man and everybody else out there stay frosty 